You know what, you can go ahead and be seated as we turn now to that firm foundation that God has given to us in his word. Uh, This morning we're going to step back once again into the book of Numbers uh, to see once again what uh, Jim had mentioned in that passage that he read, uh, what Luke mentioned as he wrote there that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, spoke about all that the scriptures tell about him. We know that the Bible uh, from beginning to end is all to focus us upon the work of God and on the work of Christ. Uh, Sometimes those pictures of Jesus are easy to see. Uh, Sometimes it takes a little bit more digging. Or when we dig a little more, we see even more of the riches of the foundation that we have in God's Word that speaks to us of Christ. And so we're going to see once again as we turn back to the book of Numbers, um, more of how all of Scripture speaks to us of Christ and of that historic, ongoing plan of God to redeem a people for himself. As you turn with your, in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, and we'll be turning to the beginning of the book this morning, I'll be reminded that these people that we're going to talk about here, this is the church of the Old Testament. These are not just some group of Jews, some foreign nation from an ancient time, but these are, if you will, our spiritual forefathers. This is the church in its infancy in the Old Testament. And these people here in the book of Numbers are headed somewhere or getting ready to head somewhere, as are all of God's people, all believers in God's promises. We're all journeying through the wilderness toward a promised land that God has promised to us, just as he had to them. And we know that we will arrive there because of two things. First, because he who promised is faithful. And secondly, because the way has been opened, the way has been blazed, Um, Jesus, our head, has already entered that place, and we will surely follow. Now, we have a long reading uh, today. It's Numbers 1 and 2, and that's quite a, a bit. A lot of names here, a lot of numbers. And so what I'm going to do in order to help us kind of stay on board and to keep everyone focused... I'm going to, as I read these two chapters, I'm going to skip some of the repetitive language that is here, some of the names uh, that, though inspired by God, every word of this scripture is inspired by God, and though included in uh, the record through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we can this morning, for our purposes, abbreviate some of this and skip over for the sake of clarity Uh, some of the names and some of the numbers, because sometimes some of these names, that's not because I'm afraid to try to pronounce them, although maybe I should be at times, um, but it's to help us kind of stay focused. So, numbers one, and if you want to, because I'm going to be skipping a little bit, you can either follow along or just listen as I read these first two chapters or portion of it. This is numbers beginning at the very beginning of the book. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, 
all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And then after this, we get a, a list of all of the names of the men, one from each of the tribes who are going to assist Moses, and we'll skip that. In verse 17, then, we read that Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. I'm going to stop there because then we get a, a, a list and we have that same technical language, that same verbiage that I just read about Reuben uh, for each of the tribes that are listed. This is a, a formal census, and so this is very formal language. Uh, but we're, I'm not going to read all of those, but here are the numbers uh, from the various tribes. From the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. From Simeon, 59,300. From Gad, 45,650. From Judah, 74,600. From Issachar, 54,400. From the tribe of Zebulun, 57,400. From Ephraim, 40,500. From Manasseh, 32,200. From Benjamin, 35,400. From Dan, 62,700. From Asher, 41,500. And from Naphtali, 43,400. Then picking back up in the text in verse 44, these are those who were listed whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. And you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites, <clears throat> and the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses." The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. The chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab, his company is listed as being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, 
the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar, his company is listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Halon, his company is listed being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Elizur, the son of Shadur. His company is listed 46,500. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. The chief of the people of Simeon being Shalumiel, the son of Zerushaddai. His company is listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Ruel. His company as listed being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishamah, the son of Amahud. His company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, the son of Bedazur. His company as listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin being Abidan, the son of Gideoni, his company is listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies. The chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, his son as listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher being Pagliel, the son of Okran. His company is listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being Ahira, the son of Enan. His company is listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last standard by standard. These are the people of Israel as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. This morning we're going to look at really a pivotal moment in the history of the children of Israel. They have just recently been brought by the mighty hand of God uh, out of their enslavement in Egypt. They have come across, the, or rather through, the Red Sea and have journeyed from there to the foot of Mount Sinai. God has given to them the, the Ten Commandments, those ten words uh, to Moses, and he's given them to the people. God has also given to them all of the other laws that we read about in this section of God's Word. Um, and he's revealed to Moses the very detailed uh, plans for the tabernacle, that mobile throne room of, of God's presence among his people. One of the things that many people don't realize that, is that this company of God's people stayed at the foot of Mount Sinai, we think of them coming there and, and receiving the Ten Commandments and then moving on, but they were there for 11 months. 
um, during which time all the materials were gathered and the things were all made for the tabernacle, uh, for the working of the priests, for their ministry, and so on. And, and God commands then the people to build the tabernacle according to that plan that he had given to them, which they do. And we read then at the end of Exodus that having done so, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then we come to the book of Numbers, which covers the time period from right before they leave the foot of Mount Sinai until right before they enter into the promised land. And in the book of Numbers, we know that many of the well-known stories of the children of Israel are found there the sending of the ten spies into the land and their report and the, the lack of belief on the, rest of, the part of the rest of the people, the years of the wilderness wandering, the, the bronze serpent, Balaam and his talking donkey. And as you can already see from this passage this morning, there was also a numbering, a census taken of the people. There's also another census in the book of Numbers, at the end of their journey, which is recorded later in the book, and it is from those two censuses, sensei, that we get the name of this book, Numbers, because there's a numbering of the people. Although, uh, just a note of information here, that the Hebrew name of this book is not Numbers. It's translated in the wilderness, which is probably even a better title for the book. But the first two chapters of Numbers, which we just read, record this first census. They record the the orientation of this camp when it's camped. And it is revealed the orientation of the people when the camp sets out. And so that's going to be our outline, actually, this morning. Going to be the census, the camp at rest, and the camp on the move. So first, and chapter 1 sort of is, is all taken up by this, and this is that census. The, the census that is taken, verse 1 tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses and commanded Moses to take. And a couple of things that I just want us to notice about that. First is that, that this wasn't Moses' idea. Uh, and he wasn't supposed to take this all by himself. But he was to enlist, as we read there, the, the, the help of others. A man from each tribe was going to help him do this. And those are the names that we, well, we skipped in the first part, but then ended up reading them in the second chapter. But it's important that God's the one that chose all of these people. He chose Moses. He told Moses to do this census. He chose the people that are to help. These men are specifically called to not only assist Moses, but in chapter 2 we read that they're called the chiefs of their people. The second thing to, to make note of is that this census was to include all of the tribes. We saw that in chapter 1 and verse 2. Take a census of all of the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers, houses, according to the number of names. Um, Of course, we noted, and if you were paying careful attention, you'll note that there was one exception, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But third, alongside, or although, rather, although this census was to include all of the tribes of Israel, it was not to include all of the people of Israel. In verse 2, again, they're supposed to take a census. Verse 3 says uh, who they're supposed to count. Um, I'm sorry, verse 2 says, Every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. 
Though they're only to count the warriors. They're only to count those who are able to fight. So this census here is really a military census. Now that's significant and, and odd to us as we hear it because up until this point, the people of Israel were not a military people. In fact, what had they been doing for the last 400 years? They were slaves. They were slaves, not warriors. Yet God is now counting them as an army. He is preparing them to be warriors. Their purpose in being led out of Egypt by God, or by Pharaoh through the work of God, their purpose of that was not only to serve God and to worship God, which it was, But it was also, if you think of what they are told they're going to do when they get to their destination, to the promised land, they were told that their purpose was to clear out, to defeat, and to to inhabit that land. Their purpose was to be one not only of worship, but of battle. And so as they get ready to move out, God says, count the warriors. Now, As it was true for the people in the wilderness back in the book of Numbers, it's also true for the church today. For you all sitting here this morning, you are called not only to worship God, not only to to just relax in your salvation, but you, people of God, are called to be warriors. In the spiritual war that we fight, the church is called the church militant while we're here. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to physically go out and fight or that we should go out and and fight to try to enter into the promised land. There's one who has already done that for us, as I mentioned at the beginning. And we do not, like the religion of Islam does, seek to convert people through force. We don't do that. But we fight. We fight every day. You all know that you're in a battle every day. You fight against the world. As we seek to stand for the truth of God against the world system that hates God, that hates Christ. Our war is against the devil as he seeks to prevail against Christ's church and seeks to discourage you and to distract you and to disturb you as Christ's child. And of course your war is with the flesh with yourself. Perhaps the most difficult here because here we're fighting against ourselves. You're engaged in a constant war with yourself, with that, the vestiges of your old self that still cling to you and still try to drag you back into the ways that you used to live. A battle there that you are commanded to take no prisoners in regard to that battle. Ephesians 6 tells us about that. So like the children of Israel, we too are led out of slavery by God and into battle. But that brings up an interesting point here in the book of Numbers. Think about what God does here at the foot of of Mount Sinai. He has Moses number these soldiers. He arranges them as an army. He counts them as an army. We'll see that the the arrangement of this camp is, is a military arrangement. But also notice what we never read that he does do. And that is he never trains these people to be warriors. And why not? Well, it's because they are not the ones who are going to determine the outcome of the battle. 
It is not their strength. It is not their military acumen, their military prowess that really has an effect on the outcome. And we see this over and over. But the battle is whose? The battle's the Lord's. So though he will train them over the next 40 years, he doesn't train them to fight in their own power, to rely on that power. But he trains them at every point to rely on him. And we we see this graphically illustrated in in battle after battle during this period, especially once they entered into the promised land, where they really have the battle then before them. And so it is God is setting up a nation of warriors, but warriors without specific training as warriors. A group of people set apart to serve God, not in their own strength, but in His. And it is now as then that the battle belongs not to us, the battle belongs to the Lord. That His strength is made perfect in weakness. Our armor as Christians today is not our armor but what? It is the armor of God. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, are not physical weapons. They're not carnal, but they're spiritual. As we take captive every thought that sets itself up against God. And in everything, in our battle, it is the Lord who gives the victory. It is the Lord who comes in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil and gives us progress. As in Zechariah 4.6, where God says, It is not by might, it is not by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord. And that is the source of victory then for them, for the children of Israel. It is the source of victory for us today in the battles that we have to fight. But that may be getting ahead of ourselves because these people are not yet engaged in specific battles. They're sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai hearing what God is saying to them. So they make this count of all of those that are able to go to war, and we have there in chapter 1 the numbers given in this very repetitive nature that fits perfectly with a formal census record. And we come up with this very large number of 603,550 fighting men, which if you extrapolate that out to include women and children, comes to roughly 2 million people here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And before we move on, I mentioned that there's one tribe that is not specifically, or is specifically not to be counted. Did you catch which tribe that is? It's the tribe of Levi. Because they were specifically set apart by God as having a special task. Not as warriors, but in verses 50 and 51, we read that they are to be appointed over the tabernacle, uh, over all its furnishings over all that belong to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. Because they were chosen to this work, they are not counted with the warriors. They were excused from that warfare since they were involved in a particular form of warfare, as it were, keeping guard over the tabernacle that place where God's presence was, and they are to give service there. And so that's the census of the people. Let's look then at the second thing, which is the camp at rest, and that's in chapter 2. Again, it's prefaced by a statement that reminds us that God is the one who has this all under control. He is the one giving the commands, 
And in chapter 2, as we read it, we saw that there are sort of two interwoven sets of instructions regarding the configuration of the camp of Israel, of the children of Israel having left Egypt and now getting ready to cross over through the wilderness into the promised land. First, he gives them instructions on how the camp is to be configured when they're parked, when they're camped, when they're at rest. And by this configuration, he shows not only that God is a God of order and orderliness, which he is, which he does, it does show that, but also, and mainly, I want you to see that Yahweh, God, is the focus of this new people, this this new nation. He calls the shots. He gives the orders. And he gives the order. So here in this layout of the camp that we read, there are two things that are very obvious, obvious. And first is that the camp is oriented by God. Again, God's command. As he gives the, the information here, the layout, the camp is to be laid out basically as a square. And in the very center of the square is the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting facing the east, the opening face to the east. Then surrounding the tabernacle are the Levites, the tribe of Levi, all of these people. Some to the south of the tabernacle, some to the west, and some to the north. And then Moses and Aaron and his sons are to camp to the east, directly in front of the tent. Then around them are to be the rest of the people. And we got all of these instructions on how they're to be organized. All the rest of the people according to their tribe, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west, and three on the north. And of course, God is the one who says who goes where. The camp is given its orientation by God. It is oriented by God, by His Word. In His giving the command that the camp is to be laid out this way. That's the first way. But also by the the centrality of the tabernacle which is called also, remember, the tent of meeting. It is where God would meet with Moses and through him with his people. It was there that God would speak to Moses and give him the the commands for the people. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Numbers, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. And so from that we see as well that, that God is central. His worship, his word, God's word is their authority for everything. That is God's method of setting up, of orienting the church in the Old Testament people of God. And it is his way of orienting, setting up the church in the New Testament people of God, us. Like the Old Testament church, the New Testament church was not is not centered around any of the other things that so many people want to center the church around today. Rather, in the New Testament, we read regarding the church that the disciples, the church members, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Their focus, their guide, their instruction book was what God said in His Word. Jude told the believers to whom he wrote that in the face of even apostasy that was going on, that they were to contend earnestly for the faith once for all given to the saints. 
that what God had said was to be their guide, and they were content to contend for that. Peter says you would do well to pay attention to that prophetic word, the Scripture, knowing that in the Scripture that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God never left himself and never leaves himself without a place for us to go to know how we are to orient ourselves. And that is his word that he gives to us. That is true today, just as it was true then. And that will inevitably point us in the direction of the second aspect of this orientation of this camp while it's at rest. The second thing in this description, and more importantly, is that not only is the camp oriented by God, but the camp is oriented around God. While the nation is at rest, while they are encamped, which could range, the scripture tells us, from a night to more than a month, however long it's there, the people, by this configuration, are reminded of what is at the center of their existence. What is at the center of their life? And they are taught, and we are taught by looking at this, two qualities of God that this layout that God gives inculcates in in the people of God and reminds them of constantly and should remind us of. The first is God's nearness. His imminence, his presence with his people. All they had to do to be assured of this, that God was with them, was to look into the center of the camp. And they would know, as they would look there, they would know that God was with them. It's, it's like children. You children, if you've ever been doing a play or up in a choir or something singing. Have you ever done that and been, well, adults can think back to this too, being scared of all these people staring at you, of all the pressure on you to, to do what you've been practicing. And how comforting it is as a child, I can remember being up in front doing that, how comforting it was when you could look out into the crowd and see your parents. See your parents smiling at you, reassuring you. Well, that's what the Israelites could do. They only needed to look into the midst of the camp, and there was the tabernacle. There was the tent where God met with them. The tent of meeting, the one place on earth where God sent his presence, his covenantal presence. And remember also that this wasn't just a bare tent in the middle of the camp. It wasn't just a tent that looked like all of the innumerable tents in the camp. Oh, it was different. It had the courtyard. You all know the, the, the directions and the, and the way that this looked with the courtyard and then the, the, the holy place and then within that the holy of holies and all of the furniture and all of that. But that's not what I'm talking about. This tent had another incredible manifestation of the favor of God on this people. The presence of Yahweh. Listen as I read from a little later in Numbers from chapter 9. 
Moses writes, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at evening, <coughs> at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. He has, or he was, God was in view in close proximity to them as they would live their lives and as they made their offerings in not just the tent, but in the presence of God manifested over it in this fiery cloud. And think of it as a fiery cloud. At day you'd see the cloud, at night the fire would become visible. It's not like there were, it was done in shifts where the cloud would come and then at night the cloud would leave and the fire would come. It was a fiery cloud. And it was always there. And to the children of Israel, here God was quite literally, as well as he was to be figuratively the center of their lives. And God designed it that way, and God willed it that way. That layout of that camp was not unique in that. In other armies of other nations, the tent at the middle of a camp belonged to the general or to the king if he was there. The tent of the, in the midst of the camp was, was the dwelling of the one in charge. Only this tent in the Israelite camp didn't house just a king. It didn't house a human warrior. The tent in the midst of this camp was the tabernacle of Yahweh. He was near them. He was with them. He was their captain. He was their king. And he was always there. So his nearness is one of the things that this layout shows to them, but it also shows them something else. Look again at chapter, at verse 2, this time verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Now, if you're reading in a different translation, you may have a different translation of that last phrase. The ESV says they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Other translations, and I think the better translation, especially in the context here, is that it says they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance or at some distance from it. This God, Yahweh, was in the midst of his people, but he was not one of his people. He was not one of the guys. He's not on their level. He's separate. Yahweh is eminent. He is with them, but he is also holy. And his holiness is also demonstrated by this. He's approachable, but not on the Israelites' terms, on God's terms. And because he is holy, he says, camp with the tabernacle in the middle, but camp at a distance from it. Leave some space. And then along the same lines, remember God stationed the Levites between the tabernacle and the people. And they are to guard the tabernacle. Why are they to guard the tabernacle? Well, not because God needed protecting Not because God couldn't defend himself. Not because God was afraid that somebody was going to sneak in and take him out. 
It's not because God needed protecting. No, it was for the people's sake. In chapter 53, I'm sorry, in verse 53 of chapter 1, it says that the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. Verse 51 says that if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. God is a holy God. And the the gap and the Levites were to protect an unholy people from a necessarily absolutely holy God. Anyone who tried to usurp the place of the priest to tear down God's order were killed. And in fact, if you move a little ways further in the book of Numbers, you'll find that that continues to be the case. So God, in setting up the camp, demonstrated both his nearness and his holiness. Both his eminence and his transcendence. And the camp was oriented then by God and around God. And this is all echoed, isn't it, in the times of the New Covenant. The times in which we live. The times in the the New Testament and after. We are given access to God in a way that the Israelites even never were. But we are still to treat him as holy. Something that the church has forgotten today in this rush of of intimacy and familiarity. People have forgotten that God is God. That God is holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. And the Spirit even that dwells in each and every Christian, remember, is the Holy Spirit. And we must treat Him as that. We must remember that. Beloved, our lives individually and our lives corporately as a congregation must always reflect a knowledge and a reverence for the holiness of God, even as it rejoices in the nearness of God to us, which is ultimately shown to us in the fact that God sent His Son to be Emmanuel, God with us. And it was no different, we see thirdly here, when the cloud would then lift from the tabernacle, which was the sign from God that it was time for the camp to move out. We see the camp on the move. And notice again, the, the, the preeminence of God as we think of what we read there. He, he said, God said, when it was time to move, He said when it was time to stop and set up the camp. In fact, if we jump ahead here to chapter 9... Let me read a few verses from chapter 9. It says, Whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, that was where the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. And when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, 
And according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud was lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. When it was time to move, they would move. Aaron and his sons, the the Kohathites and the Gershonites and the Merorites, they all had their jobs to pack up the tabernacle. A very fascinating uh, set of instructions for that. Very strict instructions. You can read it in in Numbers 4. And then they'd set out. And they set out according to the orders that that God gave. And they set out according to the order that God gave. We read it. God literally gave the Israelites their marching order. Can you imagine if God would have said, just settle it among yourselves? Read in the New Testament where the, the disciples in Jesus' day are always quarreling about who was the greatest. Think of the church today, who can hardly keep it together when they have to decide what color the new carpet in the sanctuary is going to be. So God wisely gives them the order. But it's not for practical reasons such as that, although there is practicality in it. It, God said Judah, and that group goes first. And they were the largest tribe. And Dan and their group was to be at the, the rear They were the second largest group, so that makes sense. Strength at the front, strength at the rear. But notice what's in the center. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. God, again, literally, when the camp is moving, God is literally, as well as symbolically, at the center of the camp. When it's on the move, when it's at rest. The centrality of God always before the eyes and the minds of God's people. But consider this. The the passage in in Numbers 9 that I read a little bit ago, part of it, uh, which says that the cloud would move from over the tabernacle (coughs) uh, when it was time to move, also said, (coughs) excuse me, also said that in the place where the cloud set down, there the people of Israel camped. <coughs> this fiery cloud, this manifestation of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, which is what it was, the Holy Spirit led the people. This way, this way, stop. <coughs> God is seen in this as both the center, then, of the people of God and of the camp, and as the leader of the camp, as he led them through the wilderness. The people are oriented by God and oriented to God, whether at rest or whether they're moving. So there is a thorough God-centeredness to the life of the people in their journey. Everything directed their attention to God, and that by design. When they arrived, it would be the same thing. When they arrived in the promised land, in the various ceremonies and the sacrifices, all of that that would all take place, it was all to focus them on God. One more thing to see. 
Now notice this marching order that we looked at. The, the first tribe that was to move out was under the banner of Judah. Certainly, I said it had the practicality of being the largest group, but why was it the largest group? And why, did it, why was it told by God that it would set out first? Could it have been because it was the blessed tribe, the blessed group? Do you remember back in Genesis, at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, Jacob calls his sons, the patriarch Jacob calls all of his sons to pass on the covenantal blessing. He bypasses, remember, the oldest, which was Reuben. He bypasses the second and the third, Simeon and Levi, and he gave the blessing to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Blessings given, pronounced on them, of dominion and and victory. But he says something else that that really grabs our attention here as we consider this, this marching order of the people of God through the wilderness as they march toward the promised land. Also in Genesis 49, Jacob says to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. He says, from the tribe of Judah, rulers will come, but also a ruler will come. He to whom the scepter belongs, he to whom the rule is is set, he to whom the rule belongs. In Genesis 49.9, which I just read in Jacob's blessing, he refers to Judah as a lion's cub. And in due time, John will tell us in the book of Revelation that one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That lion that came from from that lion's cub of the tribe of Judah is worthy in the book of Revelation to receive all glory and honor and blessing because he was slain and ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he has made them, the text says, a kingdom of priests to our God. So we, we wrap all of this up and see that the ancient church was led through the wilderness by the Father, by Christ, and by the Holy Spirit, the triune God. God is the center. God is their their leader. The Spirit of God leads them by the cloud, giving them direction as to when and where to go and when to stop. And in Judah, the lead tribe, is to be traced the one who is anointed head of his church, strength of his church, the king of the church, the one in whom God has spoken authoritatively in the church and finally in the church, Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the people of God were oriented by, around and by the triune God, and we are today. And people of God, the greatest blessing of the church is not that we are 
champions of morality and good behavior. Not that we raise kids that are better than non-Christian kids. It's not that we are faithful to our spouses, not that we have a positive influence on society, not that we have a better outlook on life or feel good about our own piety. But the greatest blessing of the church, like that of the camp of Israel in the book of Numbers, is that now and for eternity, God is in the midst of the camp. And Christ is the leader of his church. And for that, we can rejoice. And this morning, as we consider that, as we take that with us, we can all say, Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture of your nearness and of your holiness, of your guiding of your church and of your focusing of the attention of your church in everything upon you. We pray, Father, that we would learn from this. We pray, Father, that that as we read these things in the, the Old Testament, that we would look to see how Christ is portrayed how the work of God is, is laid out before us in the, the great magnitude that it is. And we pray, Lord, that we, your people, would look often, especially in troubled times, whether it's the, the, the trouble of, of personal trials, of sickness, or whether it's the trials, Lord, as we see wars throughout this world. May we, Lord, look into the center of the camp and rejoice and be comforted in the fact that you are there, that you are with us, that you are guiding us, that you are leading us, and that you will bring us to that promised land that you have given, that Christ has already entered. And we thank you for that. May we rejoice in that. And we pray this in his name. Amen.